Good morning, everybody. It is a brand new year with brand new possibilities and brand new hope. Thank you for joining us here in Northville and there in Farmington Hills and everywhere online. We have a higher than usual number of people joining us from the state of Florida this morning. Uh, good, good morning to all of our snowbirds watching online. We also have people tuning in today from uh, the cities of Cancun and Amsterdam and about 12 other cities. And if you're somewhere else, welcome uh, to you. Have you heard about this massive advertising campaign all about Jesus called He Gets Us? He Gets Us. It's designed to help Americans, particularly younger Americans, relate to the Jesus of the Bible. Because Americans right now have a lot of stereotypes, a lot of negative stereotypes about Christianity and about the church, and this campaign aims to bust those stereotypes. Anybody seen a He Gets Us television ad or billboard? Um, they are so well done, and I want to show you a few examples this morning. Here is a 30-second spot that I saw on television last month. Uh, let's watch this one. A girl got pregnant. She was scared. Her parents thought her boyfriend was the father, but the baby wasn't his. He loved her, so he offered to raise the child with her. One evening, her water broke. There wasn't time to get help. He delivered the child and lay him in a manger. one sample. That's one sample. They're so stark, these black and white images and surprising story uh, twists. Uh, a group of wealthy anonymous families invested $100 million into this, and the ads were designed by a firm right here in Michigan. 17 different television ads. And a couple of these ads will air during the Super Bowl, just five weeks from today, and could open up the opportunity for conversations about Jesus. The ads are supposed to be for people who don't go to church or who have given up on church, but I think they're great for church people also because we also have stereotypes that need to be busted. I want to show you another example, a 30-second uh, ad. This is the last one we'll show, and it's called The Rebel. Uh, watch this one. He took to the streets. He recruited others to join him. They roamed the hood and challenged authority. Community leaders feared them. Religious leaders abhorred them. We have to get them off the streets, they said. But they weren't part of a gang spreading hate and terror. They were spreading love. Thirty seconds to show a side of the Jesus who understands the human experience. Now, the campaign is not without its critics. Some say advertising is not the way to get people to Jesus. Jesus is not a product, and human souls cannot be talked about like market share. Uh, the best way to spread the gospel is not through advertising, critics say, but through Christians living a life worth living through followers of Jesus sharing the gospel in word and deed. That's the way to do it. And I don't think anybody here would disagree with that. 
that's been true for 2,000 years. The way people come to Jesus is through a credible follower of Jesus. Advertising cannot make disciples. But advertising can get people to think differently. It can invite people to start a journey of discovery. It can start conversations. You and I are going to have opportunities to have spiritual conversations because of these advertisements. So I'd like to ask you to prepare for those conversations by uh, you know, reviewing hegetsus.com, hegetsus.com, and seeing what people will see if they follow the ads to hegetsus.com. You can see all of the videos there. You can see relevant scriptures for each. You can download a Bible reading plan. You can chat with someone live in an in a online chat forum. And if somebody wants personal contact... If somebody wants that, they can enter their contact information on the website, and the contact information will be assigned to the participating church in closest proximity. So if somebody would like human contact, they want to meet with somebody, and they ask for that, they invite that, and if they live closest to one of our campuses, we will be asked to follow up with them. Uh, So your homework assignment is to kind of look over the materials at hegetsus.com, and uh, familiarize yourself with the materials, and be praying that God would be active in our nation um, and would use these ads, and then be thinking about how, how you might uh, leverage these ads to help somebody that you know and care about understand the real Jesus. As a bonus assignment, I'm looking for people uh, willing to pray daily for the next 10 days using a 10-day prayer guide. This 10-day prayer guide takes just a few minutes a day, is available. You can uh, text the word prayer guide, the words prayer guide, you can text that to this number, 833-265-6561. You can text prayer guide and then it will come right to your phone. Or there are hundreds of printed copies around the building that you can grab on your way out at nearly every uh, desk here in Northville, also there in Farmington Hills. Uh, so let's, let's, let's pray right now. God, we thank you for the hope of a new year, and we pray that this is a year that many people will rethink and rediscover Jesus. Use us as your instruments, and now, Father, as we return to our study of the book of Acts, be our teacher and guide. Speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Today we return to our New Testament study of the book of Acts, and we've dedicated the better part of a school year to this single book of the Bible. We started in the book of Acts in September. We took a break for the Christmas season. We'll take a similar break in the Easter season, but for the most part, we are working our way through the 28 chapters of the book of Acts, the story of the early church. And may I remind you that our purpose is not to approach this as a historical study by which we may be informed, but to approach it as the word of God by which we may be transformed. When we started in September, I told you that you and I were gonna go on a journey this year together through the book of Acts, in which we would become intimately acquainted with the most prominent character in the book of Acts, and the most prominent character in the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit again today. I told you that in this journey through the book of Acts, we are going to grow in our understanding of the church as P, 
people, as a body, that we would grow as peacemakers who can handle conflict in healthy ways, that we would become fearless champions of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that we would rediscover the beauty and the power of the local church. That's our purpose in this study of the book of Acts. And today we begin uh, section two of the book of Acts. Most commentators agree that the book of Acts can be easily and cleanly divided into three distinct sections. It is a trilogy. Section one in the book of Acts, we looked at this fall, that's chapters one through seven, and we saw the foundations of the church and the values of the church and the early ministry of the church in the city of Jerusalem. It's all happening in the city of Jerusalem, but now in section two, it expands, it changes, it shifts. And this is the hinge verse right here that move us from section one to section two in chapter eight. It all hinges on this line. On that day, what day is that? When we finished uh, section one, it was, we, we finished with the stoning of Stephen. A guy named Stephen is killed for his faith, and he becomes the first uh, Christian martyr in history. And on that day, on the day that Stephen was stoned, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, not just Stephen, but against the whole church, all the Christians in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, and those who had been scattered, what did they do? They preached the word wherever they went. So this little fledgling movement had, had kind of flown under the radar in Jerusalem initially. But now they have thousands of converts to Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, now they're starting to challenge the status quo of the culture. And now they've attracted the attention not only of Jewish leaders, but of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire decides that they want to snuff out this little movement. I wanted to call this sermon series in the middle of the book of Acts, I wanted to call the series, The Empire Strikes Back. But that title was already taken. So we called it Under Pressure. The church will now learn to live its faith under pressure. So let's talk a little bit about this middle section of the book of Acts, Under Pressure, the church under pressure. Talk about it as a section, and then we'll get to the specific passage assigned for today. Pressure can be good. A little bit of persecution can be healthy. Historically, persecution intended to crush the faith has always served to expand faith and deepen faith. Persecution, historically and globally, intended to suppress and crush faith has always served to expand, to uh, spread faith, and to deepen faith. First of all, expand faith. Uh, the first church in the first century started in the city of Jerusalem, but it was never intended to stay there. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's the city where you are right now. In Judea, that's the region around you. In Samaria, that's the place right next door. And then on to the ends of the earth. But it could have been tempting to stay in the city of Jerusalem only. The leaders were saying, this is going really well here in the city. We have thousands of people. We have to care for them. We have to teach them. It's too early to expand. Let's stay right here. And a lot of historians believe that what really got them out of Jerusalem was not their own goodwill, but persecution. 
When the church came under pressure, it says everybody except for the apostles spread geographically, and when they spread geographically, they took the gospel with them. It's almost like God is saying, my church was not meant for one city or for one ethnicity, and if you will not move out to the world on your own, I will allow the circumstances to force you out. Persecution is always served to expand the faith, and then persecution also serves to deepen the faith. In places in the world right now where Christianity is most persecuted, the faith seems most robust. It seems the deepest, the most resilient. And curiously, in places in the world where persecution is the lightest, the Christian faith seems to be the most lukewarm. When our faith is under pressure, it forces us to assess what we really believe and what price we are willing to pay. Uh, several years ago, when my daughter was in middle school, she came home one day, seventh grade, and she said, Dad, I hope you're not upset with me, but I corrected a teacher today. <laughs> what do you mean you corrected a teacher today? Well, we were learning about global religions, and today was Christianity, and I said, that, that's not what Christians believe. Said, oh, what, what did the teacher uh, say? Well, the teacher was summarizing Christianity by saying what Christians believe is that when you die, you go to this judgment day, and that your good and bad deeds are weighed against each other, and if you have enough good things, then you go to heaven. And I said, that's not what Christians believe. So the Bible teaches that nobody can do enough good deeds to get into heaven, and it's a gift from God, and Christianity is all about grace. So I hope you're not mad at me, Dad. Honey, I've never been more proud. Right, we want our kids to have a little bit of fire because a little bit of fire clarifies what we believe and strengthens us and it's good for the soul. Too much fire, we don't want our kids to be bowled over. We don't want so much blowing that it snuffs out the faith. Pressure on people of faith is increasing in most places in the world right now. According to the human rights organization Open Doors, they say that more than 360 million Christians today live in a nation where they suffer from some form of persecution, such as arbitrary arrest, violence, a full range of human rights violations, and even murder. Same organization says that an estimated 4,000 Christians were killed last year because of their faith. Now, Christian faith in America is under pressure as well, but I'm not sure we can compare it to what our brothers and sisters are going through in other nations. We feel like we're being persecuted here, but then I meet last summer Andrew Brunson, who spent two and a half years in a Turkish prison because of his faith, and I start to back down. Am I really being persecuted because I'm mad the cashier said happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas? It's not the same thing. Now, some of these circles that write about persecution, global persecution, I've noticed recently they're, they're talking about stages of persecution. Someone sent this to me, stages of persecution. I think this language can be helpful. Uh, stages of persecution usually starts with stage one, stereotyping, which is when an overly simplistic summary of a group is applied to every individual in that group. Uh, maybe you feel like you've been stereotyped. Um, because of your faith, and then it moves to stage two, which is vilifying, seeing that targeted group as uh, actually harmful, and then it moves to marginalizing, where that group gets put on the margins of society, and then uh, their activity becomes criminalized, and then full-blown persecution, stages of persecution. This language is not mine, but those who use it uh, say that this is what happened in the first century 
It was an elevation. And this is what happens in every place in the world where people are persecuted because of their faith. And this is what's going on in America now. Now, I don't know what kind of level you think you've experienced because of your faith. Maybe you've experienced a little level one or two, or some of you might feel you're at three. But whatever we're at today, uh, do we all agree that over the next couple of years, the pressure that people of faith are going to feel is going to go, is going to go up? Anybody think the pressure is going to go down? Wherever the pressure is, whatever pressure you feel, it's only going to go up in the next year, and we don't need to be afraid of that. God does his best work on the margins. Power has never been great for the church, and power has never been necessary for the church. The church under pressure expands and deepens. All right, so we talked a little bit about what we're going to see in the center section of the book of Acts about a church living its faith out under pressure. Now I want to turn and talk about the specific passage for the day in Acts chapter 8. Again, this is the story. Now we read how it changes here. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. So in Jerusalem, they're under pressure. They're under persecution. The believers scatter and, and take the faith with them. And one of those guys is Philip. Philip is a Christ follower in Jerusalem, and he leaves the city of Jerusalem because of the pressure, because of the persecution, and he ends up in Samaria, curiously exactly what Jesus said they were supposed to do from from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and he proclaims the Messiah there. Now, he's not proclaiming the Messiah randomly. He is guided by God, and he's guided by the voice of the Holy Spirit. And you remember, one of the key themes of the book of Acts is how the Holy Spirit guides and directs and empowers them throughout this whole process. And in Philip's case, the voice of God um, is, has such a level of specificity that it's, it's, uh, it's, um, it's uncanny. This is what God says to him in the directions. Go south to the road... The desert road, the one that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Is, is that not uh, uh, narrow, narrowly specific? Wouldn't you love to hear God say that? Look, take, take, a, take a right at the third stop sign, and you'll find the person I want you to meet, because God does this. God sees a need over here, and he sees one of his children over here, and he prompts his child to go to that person to meet that need or to deliver that good news. And with Philip, he hears the voice of God with great clarity. Another example, he says in the next sentence, go to that chariot, (laughs) go to that one right there and stay right near it. And that's how God got Philip to this Ethiopian that he wanted him to talk to. In the book of Acts, we see God prompting, guiding, leading, directing his people. And God still does this today. When I was in college and spent a summer uh, with a Christian group uh, trying to bring the gospel to the Soviet Union, we were, our training program was kind of like this. They said, when you walk around the city square, um, you know, pray about God, who, who do you want us to talk to? Who would be open to a conversation? Who's especially hurting today? And you just kind of put your antenna up and you just kind of listen for the still small voice of God. And of course, you don't have to be on a summer impact trip to do this. You can do this at the shopping mall. You can do this in downtown Northville or downtown Farmington. Uh, You can do this uh, in in Walmart. You walk around. You say, God, I'm your instrument today. How would you direct me? Who would you have me speak to? Direct me to that person you want me to buy their groceries. You want me to say a kind word to this person. You kind of guide me throughout the day. God speaks to 
people. Uh, there was a couple who visited our church one Sunday, and they told me they are not churchgoers, and one Sunday morning they're having coffee, and the wife says, I feel like we should go to church today. And the husband said, me too. Sometimes this gut instinct that you have could be the voice of the Holy Spirit prompting you. Now, it might not be. Uh, Those still small voices require a great amount of discernment. This is riddled with danger. Not every voice in your head is the voice of God. You have other voices in your head. That voice could be your own voice. It could be a voice from your past. It could be another person's voice. It could be the voice of the evil one. It could be the bad sushi you ate the night prior. God will never ask you in the inner promptings to do something contrary to his word. Now notice in Acts chapter 8, our passage today, God uses the Holy Spirit to prompt Philip uh, to go to the Ethiopian. But what does God use to reveal himself to the Ethiopian? The scriptures. He's reading the Bible. The Ethiopian gets the message from the scriptures, illumined by the Holy Spirit, and assisted by a human teacher. This is a powerful formula, a powerful combination. The scriptures, gets the message from the scriptures, illumined by the Holy Spirit, assisted by a teacher, and this is, we are such uh, fanatical fans of small groups and Bible studies, where people can get the Bibles open, illumined by the Holy Spirit, and assisted by a human teacher. Throughout the book of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit helping people understand Scripture, the Holy Spirit guiding the church, the Holy Spirit calling people into ministry. We see the Holy Spirit speaking to people individually. We see the Holy Spirit speaking to groups, especially to leadership groups like the apostles. God speaks through the Holy Spirit. And we need to be like the boy Samuel who learned from his mentor Eli to pray, Lord, your servant listens. Speak, Lord. Your servant listens. God will speak to you this week. God will speak to you this year if you will listen. God will tell you things about your neighbors and your family and and even strangers. God will prompt you to meet a need or to be a voice of hope. Sometimes the Spirit guides you even if you're not looking for guidance. Uh, Tony Campolo, the sociology professor, pastor, in one of his books he tells this story. He says, There's a Pentecostal college near Eastern College where I teach. He says, I'm not Pentecostal, but I talk so fast, people think I'm speaking in tongues, so it works out okay. (laughs) He writes, one day they invited me to speak at a chapel service. I like speaking there because they're dynamic, happy people, and I enjoy being with them. And just before I spoke, eight guys took me to the back of the chapel and got me down on my knees, and then they laid their hands on my head and prayed for me. That was good. I need all the prayer I can get. There was only one problem. These guys prayed a long time. That's usually good too, but the longer they prayed, the more tired they got, and the more tired they got, the more they leaned on my head. And I want to tell you, eight guys leaning on your head doesn't feel so good. One guy wasn't even praying for me. Instead, he went on praying for somebody named Charlie Stolfes. He shouted, Dear Lord, you know Charlie Stolf is. He lives in that silver trailer down the road about a mile. You know the trailer, Lord. It's just down the road on the right-hand side. And I felt like saying, knock it off. Do you think like God is saying, what's that address again? Anyway, he went on and on. Lord, Charlie told me this morning that he decided to leave his wife and his three kids, and he told me he was walking out on his family. Lord, do something. Lord, bring the people of this family back together again, Lord. 
All the while, I'm kneeling there with eight guys leaning on my head. I'm asking myself, when's this guy going to knock it off so I can get these Pentecostal pre- preachers off my head? He kept going on about Charlie Stolfes leaving his wife and his kids and giving God reminders that he lives in a silver trailer a mile down the road on the right-hand side. Finally, the prayers were over, and I went to the pulpit and preached. After I finished, I got in my car, drove to the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and headed home. I drove onto the Turnpike. I noticed a hitchhiker. Now, I know you're not supposed to pick them up, but I'm a preacher, and whenever I can get anybody locked in as a captive audience, I do it. I stopped and picked them up. We drove for a few minutes, and I said, Hi, my name's Tony Campolo. What's yours? And he said, My name's Charlie Stolfes. I couldn't believe it. I got off at the turnpike at the next exit and headed back. He got very uneasy with that. After a few minutes, he said, hey, mister, where are you taking me? And I said, I'm taking you home. He narrowed his eyes and asked, why? And I said, because you left your wife and your three children, right? That blew him away. Yes, yes, that's right. With shock all over his face, he plastered himself against the car door and never took his eyes off me. I drove off the turnpike at the next exit, and then I really did him in as I drove right to his silver trailer. When I pulled up, his eyes seemed to bulge, and he asked, how did you know where I live? And I said, God told me. He said, I believe God really did tell me. We got out of the car, and I ordered him into his trailer. Half shaking, he answered, right, mister, sure, I'm going. And when he opened the trailer door, his wife exclaimed, you're back, you're back. He whispered in her ear, and the more he talked, the bigger her eyes got. And then I said, with real authority, the two of you are going to sit down, and I'm going to talk, and the two of you are going to listen, and man, they did. That afternoon, I led those two young people to Jesus Christ. Today, that guy is a preacher of the gospel out in California. Now, it might not be quite as dramatic as that, but many people in this room have stories about when the Holy Spirit guided them and directed them and moved in their life. And, And that day is not over. That day is not over. God directs the paths of individuals. Now, whenever we talk about the Holy Spirit, uh, people will ask questions about the more dramatic manifestations of the Spirit. What about speaking in tongues? What about miracles? And in just the couple minutes that I have left, I want to talk to you about the visible manifestations of the Holy Spirit um, that are often debated. We tend to be drawn to the more dramatic aspects of spirituality. For example, suppose there were two churches, and in one of them, the people start giving their money to the poor. They sell their homes, they downsize their lifestyles, and they become radically committed to the poor. That's church number one. Then imagine there's another church, and the people there start levitating, Um, because God could do that. I'm not saying God has or, or would want to, but just imagine that's the case. Which church would draw the headlines? Which church would people go to to check out? Which church would be giving evidence of the greatest work of the Holy Spirit? We need to think about these kind of questions. What is the evidence of the Spirit? Paul writes very plainly about this to the church in Galatia. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. 
The fruit of the Spirit. What's the evidence of the Spirit? It's those things Paul listed. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. If it's an apple tree, you expect what kind of fruit? Apples. If it's someone with the Spirit of the living in God inside of them, what fruit do you expect? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Now, the Bible uses this phrase, fruit of the Spirit and gifts of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit and gifts of the Spirit. Uh, Some people in the first century church were bragging about the gift that God had given to them. Uh, They argued about which gift was the most spiritual and the most important. And again, Paul speaks to this very directly in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, workers of miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? And the applied answer is no, not, everybody's not an apostle. Are all prophets? No, not everyone's a prophet. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And then it goes into 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, then I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. The primary evidence of the Holy Spirit is love. The primary evidence of the Holy Spirit is love. Now here in our church, we believe all the gifts of the Spirit are valid today, including the speaking of tongues. But the primary evidence of the Spirit is love. Sometimes people suggest that if the Holy Spirit were really in our church, people would be speaking in tongues and and dancing in the aisles. But the Spirit works differently at different times and in different places. Many years ago, a visitor uh, said to me, I think she was giving me a compliment, she said, Ward Church is a great church. And she went on to talk about why it's a great church. It's Bible-centered and missionary-sending, and it's active uh, with the poor, and it's active locally, it's active in the city of Detroit. Ward Church is a great church. And then she added this line, imagine if the Spirit ever got a hold of it. And I want us to be very clear on the role the Holy Spirit plays and has played in our church in these past 67 years. Every time anything good or lasting has ever happened here, anytime the gospel has been proclaimed, anytime a seeker has heard the good news that Jesus saves, anytime God's name has been lifted up in praise and worship, anytime God's face has been sought in prayer, Anytime somebody cheerfully and graciously gave money that they could have kept for themselves. Anytime one believer paused to rejoice or mourn with another. Anytime somebody took time out of their schedule to serve a child. Anytime a sinner was convicted of sin, repented, was baptized, and their name was entered into the book of life. It was the Holy Spirit of the living God moving and prompting and filling and rejoicing in the midst of God's people. And he is not finished yet. 
We ought to ask God for a mighty pouring out of his spirit in our midst that we might be guided, led, responsive, and empowered by the spirit as never before. But let's not measure it or gauge it in superficial ways. When it happens, the kingdom of God in power is going to be released. Poverty and hunger will start disappearing. Racism will end. The wise will use their knowledge not to win arguments, but to serve. Those who hold power and sway will hold it with softness and gentleness and humility. And then judgmentalism and legalism and pride and exclusivism will wither up and blow away. And the people of God, guided and transformed and empowered by the Spirit, will march once more. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Will you pray with me? Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us. Speak to us words of wisdom and of love and of correction. Give us ears to hear. Give us the ability to recognize your voice among the many voices in our world, among the many voices in our own heads. Guide and empower us to live fully in your spirit and to be known by love. This we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.